eucatastrophe. It's a term invented by the author and linguist J.R.R. Tolkien in his famous essay on fairy stories. It means the opposite of a catastrophe. You, meaning the Greek prefix for good, so eulogy, good word. You, catastrophe. It's the opposite of a catastrophe, right? So a catastrophe refers to a dramatic and surprising downturn. Like when Frodo puts on the ring he's sworn to destroy. Or when Princess Anna, turning to solid ice because of a frozen heart, is betrayed by Prince Hans. Contrast that with a catastrophe, which Wikipedia defines as a sudden turn of events in a story which ensures that the protagonist does not meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. Like the Death Star being obliterated just before the rebel base would be destroyed in A New Hope. Like 28 to 3. <laughs> in a world that so often seems so dark, are these happy endings mere wishful thinking? Uh, are they, to cite Tolkien's own essay, merely the stuff of movies? And fairy tales. This morning, we come to the two most important events in human history as we consider the death and resurrection of the Son of God. So, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 15. We'll be in verses 33 to 16 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles at the back. Uh, please feel free to grab one of those. This morning, after 24 weeks, we finally made it. Uh, we're at the end of the Gospel of Mark, so congratulations to many of you who sat through about 24 sermons. Uh, so far in Mark's biography of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 1 began by stating, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That was Mark's bottom line up front. He says, I'm giving you the main idea of the next 16 chapters in chapter 1, verse 1. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so for the last 15 chapters, we've seen various people interacting with Jesus. And all in the while, in the background, there's this question that sometimes comes to the foreground. Who is Jesus? It's what people were asking all along. And progressively, the answers have been getting a little bit better. Uh, but still many remain confused about who he was. In chapter 1, again, we saw the Father at Jesus' baptism anoint him with God the Holy Spirit and declare, you are my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We've seen witness, uh, the demons rather, witness that Jesus is the Son of God as they tremble before him. The crowds have flocked for displays of power and authority. And then since chapter 8, Jesus began explicitly asserting his own kingship and his imminent sufferings, both of which were coming through, true in Jerusalem. And so it has happened. Uh, just as Jesus called his followers to take up their crosses and deny themselves and follow him, so Jesus literally headed to the cross where he would lose his life for the sake of the gospel. Uh, last time in Mark, we saw Jesus endure mockery and scorn as Jews and Gentiles conspired to put him on the cross and so we left off in verse 33 with Jesus literally hanging on the cross. We'll have three points this morning. And the main idea of our passage is simply this. 
For those with eyes to see, Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Son of God. For those with eyes to see, Jesus is the crucified and resurrected Son of God. Now, before we read our passage, I want to briefly explain why we're going to stop this sermon and this sermon series at verse 8 of chapter 16. If you look at your Bibles, you'll notice that there are some words, some verses after the words, for they were afraid. But those words probably have a a bracket or an italics or something like that around them. Uh, And the reason for that is that the earliest manuscripts of Mark don't have those last 12 verses or so. Okay, so for the Gospel of Mark, like with every other book of the Bible, we don't have the original copy that Mark wrote. Uh, But that's not a problem because we have lots and lots and lots of copies. And so what this allows us to do is we compare those different copies. And if we've got, you know, 99 copies that say one thing, and then we've got one version that says the other, well, we know that the scribe or the copyist just made an error. So the fact that we've got so many witnesses uh, means that we have 99.8% certainty about what the original authors of the New Testament wrote. So if you ask an atheist scholar like Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who doesn't believe in Jesus, he will agree that we have 99.8% of what the the apostles originally wrote. This morning, we come to the 0.2% where we're not as sure. Uh, But yet, I'll be honest, at the same time, it's actually, it's fairly clear that Mark ended in verse 8 because all of the earliest copies that we have end in verse 8. And so we'll only be going through what the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write, concluding in verse 8. And I hope that far from diminishing your confidence in the Bible, this rather strengthens it. Uh, That you know that when you're reading your Bible, when you're reading your New Testament, you have the very words that God inspired the apostles to write. Uh, You've looked at the most difficult textual problem in the entire Bible, or in the entire New Testament, Mark 16. And it's really uh, not, uh, it doesn't change the meaning of our passage at all. So with all that in mind, uh, let's look now at Mark 15, beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself 
looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought, the spice, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 33 to 39, entitled, The Death of the Son of God. As you can tell, we've literally picked right up in the middle of the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, Jesus was initially crucified at the third hour of the day, which was 9 a.m., And then in verse 33, we see that from 3 p.m., or rather uh, from noon to 3 p.m., darkness covers the whole land. You know, while Mark covered about three years of Jesus' ministry in 10 chapters, he's devoted the last six chapters to Jesus' final week. You know, he's really zoomed in on this final week. Well, now he's spent about the last two chapters zooming in even more giving us an hour-by-hour account of Jesus on the cross. What are we to make of the darkness covering the land? In short, it's a fulfillment of Amos 8 and 9, because it represents nothing less than the judgment of God. In Amos 8, we read, On that day, when the songs of the temple shall become wailings, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and will darken the earth in broad daylight. While the Jewish religious leaders had struck and mocked Jesus, the Roman soldiers had whipped and beaten and crucified him. What Jesus endured on the cross for those three hours was nothing less than the wrath of God due to sinners. As we considered a few weeks ago, the suffering that Jesus endured at the hands of sinners was nothing compared to the bruising that Jesus endured at the hand of Almighty God. That's why he cries out in verse 34, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced something that he had never known for all eternity. For ages and ages past, for millennia upon millennia upon millennia, he had always known the love 
and delight of his father. For eons and eons, he had, in, he had known the father's embrace and smile. And yet now on the cross, that relationship, as it were, is severed. What could it possibly have been like for Jesus, who had eternally known God's intimacy, to now be abandoned on the cross? In chapter 14, we saw Jesus betrayed by Judas, one in his inner circle. He was deserted by all his closest friends. He was publicly disowned by his dearest earthly companion. He was condemned by his own people to death. And yet now on the cross, Jesus is truly alone and forsaken abandoned on the cross. You know, the psalmist regularly says, ah, my life is falling apart, but at least I have you, God. Jesus could not say that on the cross. Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In doing this, he's quoting Psalm 22, what we read earlier, what Holly read for us. Uh, Jesus is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. I guess you could say that scripture memory is uh, one potential application of this verse in trials in your life, you should remember scripture. But more than that, Jesus quotes Psalm 22 not for inspiration or to remind himself of what David went through, but because he was living Psalm 22. That is, Psalm 22 is not ultimately about David, it's about Jesus. Uh, we even saw last week that Jesus' garments were divided just like the psalm predicted. As Jesus has reminded us over and over again, this road to the cross is what God had intended. It was God's plan, what had been planned for ages past. And it's what we sang earlier. See the destined day arise. God's entire plan had been building to this culminating moment. And yet people still misunderstood Jesus. Right? That's why verses 35 and 36, they think that Jesus is trying to call for help. They thought he was trying to get down from the cross. Yet even as we saw two weeks ago, Jesus was saving others. He was not saving himself, and thus he was not able to get down if he was to save his people. And so verse 37 reads, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. You know, for the last 2,000 years, a lot of Christians have died peaceably with hope and joy in relative tranquility. They know they're going to heaven. They know they're going to be with their Savior, their Heavenly Father. They know they're going to be with all the departed saints. And so their last moments, even in the midst of persecution, have often been one of tranquility, but not so for Jesus. Unlike so many other Christians who have fallen asleep, Jesus was in bitter agony until the end. Because, again, he was suffering from something far worse than mere crucifixion. As we considered from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had now drunk to the dregs the cup 
of the wrath of God. On the cross, in the darkness, the infinite God absorbed the wrath of the infinite God. For three hours, Jesus endured an eternity in hell. He endured that kind of punishment. What was it like for the perfectly and infinitely innocent one to be weighed down by sin? Like he, he never, he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he had never known it. And yet 1 Peter 2 says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. If Adam and Eve were profoundly shocked and fractured when they came to know sin, how much more so Christ? On the cross, he bore our sin, and thus he bore the consequences of our sins. It means that Jesus was treated on the cross as if he had committed all the sins of his people. On the cross, Jesus was treated as if he had committed all the sins of his people. So I've been reflecting on this fact for the past few weeks, reading, listening to songs, thinking about this. The best description I have of this is from Christian rapper Shy Lin. Okay, so I'm going to read you some of his lyrics. I'm not going to rap it. Don't worry. <laughs> but, it, I, you know, we, I think we, the cross is just everywhere around us. We, just, we see it, and the scandal of it, I think it can escape us. This is Shy Lin. He writes, Willingly, he's under the curse. To be treated as if the sun was the worst scum of the earth. The scene is the craziest. Jesus being treated as if he is the shadiest atheist. How is it the Messiah is in the fiery pit as if he was a wicked liar with twisted desires? The one who's sinless and just, punished as if he was promiscuous and mischievous with vicious lust. The source of all godly pleasure, tormented as if he was a foul investor or child molester. How could he be bruised like he was a goody two-shoes who doesn't think that she needs the good news? He's perfect in love and wisdom, but he's suffering as if he constructed the corrupt justice system. We should mourn at the backdrop. Jesus torn like he's on the corner with crack rock with porn on his laptop. What is this? His gifts are infinite, but he's hit with licks for religious hypocrites. He's the light, but being treated like he's the seedy type who likes to beat his wife. He's treated like a rapist, treated like a slanderer, treated like a racist, or maybe a philanderer. Jesus being penalized like he had sin inside, filled with inner pride while committing genocide. I could write for a billion years and still can't name all of the sins placed on the lamb slain. What was that? Like, what would compel him to do that? Oh, beloved, this is what happened at the cross. Jesus suffered for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus paid our ransom so that we are freed from death and sin and the devil. The depth of your love is known by the lengths to which you will go to serve somebody, right? So if uh, we're standing together and you drop something and you're holding a child or a lot of items. And you say, hey, can you pick that up? It's not that hard for me to pick an item up for you. 
Uh, if you say, Scott, can you drive me to Logan at 4 a.m. tomorrow? That might test my love for you. <laughs> Consider the immensity of Christ's love for you that would take him to the cross. What else would compel him if not a love for you, for his people, a love for God? At the cross, theologians sometimes refer to it as the atonement. Atonement simply means at-one-ness. That is, we used to be estranged and alienated from God, but now the cross and Jesus has reconciled us to God. You see, the cross solves the problem that kept us out of relationship with God. It's the same problem Adam and Eve incurred when they believed the devil's lie and they ate the fruit God told them not to eat. You remember what happened? They sinned, and thus they incurred guilt, and thus they could not be in fellowship with God. They were kicked out of the garden. They were estranged when they used to know fellowship. Uh, for God is perfectly holy. He's totally just. One sin is enough to estrange us from God. And if you know yourself at all, uh, you know that you've committed a lot more than one sin. And so the question is, how can, if Adam and Eve were kicked out for one sin, how can we get back into relationship with God? And the answer is the cross. We are lawbreakers and rebels, every one of us in this room. And yet, because of his great love for us, God sent his son to absorb the punishment due our sin. Here's how Colossians 2 puts it. And you who were dead in your trespasses... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Right? So you and I were in debt to God. And usually when you're in debt, you, you get in debt and then you start chipping away at it. And hopefully it gets smaller. But for us, every day, it just kept getting bigger the more we sinned. We couldn't reduce the debt. It was growing. And yet God has made a way for all our sins to be paid for through Jesus. He never owed a debt of sin to God. And so he could take our sin upon himself. It stood against us with its legal demands. And now Jesus says, I got this, paid in full. It's as we sang, Jesus paid it all. Brothers and sisters, praise God. At the cross, we see God's infinite love and his infinite justice and holiness. At the cross, we see his holy hatred for sin, his resolve to punish transgressors, his justice and his righteousness in Jesus dying, and at the cross, we witness his infinite compassion and love. It was Jesus dying, not you and me. His love and compassion, his patience and forbearance, his generosity and persevering mercy are all on brilliant display at the cross. Uh, this is what we will celebrate for ages upon ages in heaven. Relations 5.9 states, and they sang a new song to the Lamb, 
saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is what the cross achieved. And then in verses 38 and 39, we see two immediate effects of the cross. Look there at verse 38. We read, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You know, this is so significant because of the conflict Jesus has had with the temple authorities over the preceding chapters. Uh, Since chapter 11, the Sanhedrin, the council, the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they've had it out for Jesus. They were the ones who literally arrested Jesus and condemned him to death. And so when Jesus dies, it looks like they've won, right? I mean, Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, and yet here it is Jesus who meets an untimely end. Ha! except for verse 38. Jesus said the temple would be destroyed in that generation. That would come to fruition totally and finally in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus sacked the city of Jerusalem. But here at 3 p.m. on Good Friday, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. You know, the temple, as it were, went out of business. Just like that. Just like with Be Good, right? One day it's there, working great. The next, it's all over. So the temple is useless now. The curtain, was the, temple, the curtain of the temple was the curtain that divided the holy of holies, uh, where God's presence dwelt, from the rest of the temple. Uh, that is, it separated the presence of God from people. God was other, he was holy, and just as he couldn't dwell with sinful Adam and Eve, so he couldn't dwell with sinful Israel in unmediated fellowship, what Adam and Eve had first enjoyed, where they walked with God in the Garden of Eden. Well, now there was a curtain that separated God and Israel. Only once a year on the Day of Atonement could the high priest approach God's presence, go into the Holy of Holies behind the curtain with a sacrifice. And now, on Good Friday at 3 p.m., Well, now a once and for all final atonement has been made through Jesus. His sacrifice is what we need to draw near to God. His death is what brings us to the Father. So we don't need the blood of bulls and goats or anything like that. You know, who needs the temple? We've got Jesus. Think about it. The temple was where God drew near to man. Atonement was made for sin and people drew near to God. Well, what does Jesus do? In Jesus, God draws near to us, atonement is made, and we draw near to God. Jesus is the new and better temple that we need, and that's why the old one can be done away with. Curtain, the veil tears top to bottom to signal it's God's doing, top to bottom. That's why the resurrection is so important, as we'll see. It's the establishment of a new and better temple. Not a temporary or corrupt one, but the ever-living, undefiled one, Jesus, our Savior. And so result number two from Jesus' death is verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, 
He said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is crazy. Throughout Mark's gospel, we, the readers, have known who Jesus is. Again, Mark told us. God the Father announced it at Jesus' baptism. Demons were literally tripping over themselves, prostrate before the Son of God. Yet time and time again, the crowds, the disciples, Israel's religious leaders, they don't get it. They don't understand that Jesus is the Christ, the King, that he is the Son of God. And yet here, from the most unlikely of characters, comes the highest and most exalted title yet. This centurion is the first person to say, Jesus, you are the Son of God. And notice the contrast with last week's religious leaders. Look at verse 32. In verse 32, they said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. You see, they wanted to see power displayed. They had human expectations of what kingship was, and they wouldn't believe in Jesus until they saw him conform to their expectations. They wanted to see external glory if they were going to believe. Yet here with the centurion, verse 38 says that when he saw how Jesus breathed his last, he confessed this. That is, he didn't see Jesus save himself. He didn't see a display of human or earthly power or authority. He didn't see authority, strength and glory. He saw death and suffering and sacrifice. And in that, he saw who Jesus truly was. You know, of course, this is what Jesus has been saying all along. If you want to be first, be servant of all. Take up your cross and follow him. Greatness amongst Jesus's followers is laying down your life for the benefit of others. And Jesus is the epitome of all that. You see, Jesus's greatness is seen not in his coming down on the cross, but in him staying there, in his laying down his life for us. Thus, the very, the very first human to confess Jesus as the son of God is a pagan Roman, not a Jewish scribe, not a disciple. Who would have seen that coming? Friend, I don't know what background you come from. I don't know if you expected yourself to be at church this morning. Uh, Know that God loves to show himself to the least likely. Those who, humanly speaking, seem farthest from God. Uh, It doesn't matter your past ways that you have sinned or ways that you've been sinned against. God loves to save the least likely, to reveal himself in his glory and his grace and his goodness to people like this Roman centurion. That's what verses 40 and 41 reinforce as well, as we're introduced to some of the women who followed Jesus, Mary Magdalene, another Mary, and Salome. Verse 41 states, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him 
And there were also many other women who came up to him, came up with him to Jerusalem. Now pause. This is a really, really random time to insert a comment about Jesus's female followers, right? I mean, Mark's like telling this really dramatic hour by hour story of how Jesus is crucified. Why does he interrupt to say, oh, and a lot of women followed him as well? Well, it's because of the absolutely crucial role they're about to play in this story when they find the empty tomb. And yet, even before that, Mark reminds us that they've been there all along. They've been following and ministering since Jesus' early days. Like blind Bartimaeus, like the children, like the woman with a discharge. So many times, people low on the social totem pole have seen in Jesus a compelling king. Mark highlights these women to remind us yet again the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. The lowly are exalted. Uh, The women here are honored and recognized for their important role in supporting Jesus' ministry and in personally following him. Uh, Ladies, be encouraged by what a crucial role women have always played and continue to play in God's plan of redemption. And we see it also in the Gospel of Luke especially. All the ways women were serving and ministering, serving Jesus. I'm so thankful for so many of the women how you serve in this church. Let's turn to our second and briefest point in verses 42 to 47, entitled, A King's Burial Now. In verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who is also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, now pause. The surprises keep coming, actually. Because up until now, how have the Jewish religious leaders fared in Mark's gospel? Really bad. There's like maybe one story over 16 chapters where a Jewish religious leader kind of does the right thing. And here, though, Joseph... He takes courage. He asks for Pilate's body, or Pilate for Jesus' body. He takes courage. Friends, I wonder in ways God is calling you to take courage and to do the right thing. This was, of course, a risk for Joseph. Pilate could come down on him. Oh, you're an accomplice of that Jesus guy? We're going to get rid of you. Even apart from Pilate, Joseph was part of the council that condemned Jesus to death by going to get Jesus' body. Surely they would have spurned him, rejected him. Why does Joseph display such devotion to Jesus? Well, it's because of what Mark has told us. He was looking forward to the kingdom of God. Translation, he wasn't living for this life. He wasn't living for worldly approval. Brothers and sisters, if you want to do practical good to your neighbors and be bold in the face of persecution and opposition, think often of the kingdom of God. Think often of Jesus' return. Long for it and look forward to the day when the kingdom will come entirely. It's here already. It's here in this room. 
And one day it will truly and finally and fully come. That's what Joseph lived for. For, of course, to be awaiting God's kingdom is to long for God's king. That's what Joseph saw in Jesus. And so Joseph shows courage. I think it's really interesting in verses 44 and 45, we see Pilate's surprise that Jesus has died so quickly. Again, I think this is kind of an evidence for the reliability of Mark's gospel. If you are concocting a fake story about this hero and the hero has to die, wouldn't you make him like really, really hard to kill? Right? Like think about Boromir at the end of Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring. The dude's got like four arrows in him and he's still flailing away, killing all these orcs. But Jesus dies quickly. I think Mark includes this detail because it really happened. In verse 46, we read that Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Uh, Notice first that Joseph buys the shroud, showing that serving Jesus can be costly. Second, while the bystanders thought Elijah would take Jesus down in miraculous vindication, finally, it is Joseph who takes Jesus down in apparent defeat. And then third, Joseph buries Jesus securely. This wasn't a communal grave where Jesus could have been lost. It wasn't a mass grave. This wasn't the type of grave that a non-dead, unconscious person could get out of. This wasn't the type of grave that thieves could steal from. No, Jesus is dead and buried. Friends, this is a catastrophe. Will it end that way? For the woman who followed Jesus, the woman who beheld Jesus' burial, they were in for quite the surprise on Sunday morning. So we come to our final section, verses 1 to 8, entitled, The Resurrection of the Son of God. When the Sabbath was passed, verse 1, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Here we see that just as Joseph went and bought the linen shroud for Jesus' body, so too the devotion of these women is evident in their buying these expensive spices for Jesus. Uh, They need spices because they intend to anoint him, you see. This was a typical Jewish practice to offset the stink, the stench of a decaying, decomposing body. In short, these women were not expecting a resurrection. They were looking for a corpse. And I love verse 3. And they were saying to one another, who will roll the stone away from us from the entrance of the tomb? Guys, that's not like a little problem. That's a really big deal. It's like saying, let's go to D.C. and get lunch with the president. Oh, how, do you, how are you going to do it? I don't know. Let's just start going. Uh, these women, they're motivated by love. They're devoted. They don't have it all figured out. They just know this honors Jesus. Let's do it. I don't know all the details. Let's try it. I think it's a wonderful example for us. And then the action begins. In verse 4, the massive stone has been rolled away. I guess they, they will be able to anoint Jesus' corpse after all. Or will they? Verse 5. 
And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Friends, this is incredible. Don't let the familiarity of the story diminish your wonder. Dead people don't get up. They don't stop being dead, especially crucified ones. This was not the case of Jesus being mostly dead from the princess bride. No, he's like really, really dead. The centurion knew it. He had witnessed hundreds and hundreds of executions likely. The angel's message is crazy, but it's true. As Jesus said in chapter 10, all things are possible with God. The same father who pronounced his blessing and delight over his son in chapter 1 is the same God who poured out his wrath in chapter 15 is the same God who resurrected him up here in chapter 16. In verse 6, the young man offers evidence to the woman, this angelic messenger, as he tells them to look at the spot where Jesus was laid. You see, the Christian faith and belief in a resurrected Lord is not a kind of pie-in-the-sky blind faith. It's a reasoned faith based on evidence. The young man says, look right here. He's not here. Though the disciples had all fallen away, and Peter had denied Jesus three times, yet Christ evidently in verse 7 shows mercy. Despite their failings, he desires to be with them. And so how do the women respond? The very conclusion of Mark's gospel, verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. <laughs> what is happening here? This is like the climax of the story. This is what Jesus was building to the whole time, right? Isn't Mark about the revelation of Jesus's identity? Mark doesn't even show us the resurrected Jesus. What's going on to here? What are we to make of this? Well, first we know from the other gospel accounts that the women eventually do report this to the disciples. They were the first messengers of the gospel. But I think Mark deliberately doesn't show us the resurrected Jesus as a contrast with last week's religious leaders. It's what we considered earlier in verse 15, I think 31. They say, come down from the cross, and then verse 32, come down from the cross so that we might see and believe. Meanwhile, the Roman centurion was the opposite. He saw how Jesus breathed his last and died, and seeing that, he believed. The point, I think, is this. The chief priests insisted on seeing a display of worldly power. But that's not how Christ's kingdom works. Put another way, if you can't see Jesus' glory and power and authority in the cross, well, then the sight of the resurrection will do you no good. For it is the cross in which Jesus' greatness is on fullest display. The resurrection is the vindication of that glory. But if you don't see that glory in the cross, what's this resurrected Jesus going to do for you? 
And so the question for these women, the question for Mark's readers, the question for you and for me is, do you see? Do you see Jesus on the cross and behold his goodness? On the cross, do you see his love? Do you see what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God? Do you see the cross for all that it is? All the revelation of God's glory and grace in the face of Jesus Christ. These women, Mary and Mary and Salome, they were brave enough to go to the tomb of a crucified criminal. Now, would they be brave enough to take Jesus at his word? Jesus' resurrection is the vindication of his innocence and the display of his kingship. He was already innocent and he was already king. The resurrection is the public pronouncement of that. What did the resurrection achieve for us? Uh, Let me conclude with three final items. It's actually what we've already read in our historic catechism, what Dave led us through. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ assures us that we now possess the righteousness of Christ. Romans 4.25 says, Righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That is, the resurrection is integral to our salvation because in it we get the righteousness of of God. Second, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus grants us new life. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ, to be married to Christ, such that all that was ours becomes his, like sin and judgment and death. Okay, he gets that. But now that we're united to Christ, all that is his becomes ours, like righteousness and eternal life, communion with God. We now get new life because of Jesus' resurrection. Ephesians 2 declares, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. It means that right now, if you are a Christian, you have resurrection life in you. You have already passed from death to life. And so third and finally, we are now awaiting our own blessed and glorious resurrection from the dead. Death doesn't have the final word for the Christian any more than it did for Jesus. Philippians 3 states, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Brothers and sisters, this is your king, humble and lowly, gentle and merciful, power through weakness, glory in his sacrifice. If this morning you haven't bowed to King Jesus as Lord of your life, do so today for the forgiveness of your sins in the hope of eternal life. For if you have seen Christ's glory on the cross, I hope that you will follow your king in pursuing true greatness in the humble service of others. I hope that we as a church will more eagerly take up our crosses and lay down our lives in the confident expectation that just as Jesus rose to indestructible life, so too will we. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we 
praise you for the gift of your son. We praise you that you planned all this in eternity past. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you enacted it, that you accomplished it on our behalf, that you suffered for us so that we could be forgiven. And Holy Spirit, we praise you because you are the one who opens our eyes to see. We would be blind and deaf and hard-hearted without you. So we praise you for your grace. Cause us to enjoy Christ and follow him ever more faithfully now. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.